Amen. Once, I was a car prep boy. That is an actual job title for which a company like Enterprise Rent-A-Car could now be sued. Car prep boy, that was my title. It left my job description unambiguous. I was a boy who prepped cars. There's something nice about that. One of the things I discovered, and I discover each Easter when we flower the cross, and I have an absolutely inappropriate reaction to this wildly beautiful array of floral goodness. I discovered when I was using that neutralizing spray that you spray in the rental car so that no one can tell that anybody's been in the rental car, that I had a violent and disruptive sort of reaction to fragrances. My lungs would go into a state of rebellion. I would feel nauseous. I'd feel ill. I'd want to quit the world. I then discovered that the same happy reaction would happen to me any time I was around an overly perfumed uh, grandma. <laughs> or, in these last 17 years, you called me on April 1st, 2001. When we do this flowering of the cross, it's so beautiful and it's so happy, and I hate these flowers. So far, I'm standing. Mostly have my wits about me. Every year, there's some amount of alarm. Will I make it through? Will I keep breathing? Will my eyes stay open? No, I'll be fine. And I'm thankful that Chris the other day even called and said, can you tell me about which flowers you're allergic to? And I said, it's easy, all of them. (laughs) No, just the ones that smell. It's fragrance, man. It's fragrance. See, there's something not right in me, and so I have this inappropriate and unfortunate reaction to something that's magnificent. But sometimes we have inappropriate, I mean, sometimes we have appropriate and violent and disruptive reactions, outrage, really, at things that warrant it. And in both of those situations, we find that we're, we're people who are really susceptible to our relationship with impermanence. That is to say, we have a great vulnerability to the fact that things are always changing, that anything we care about can be taken away from us, that stuff breaks, that even if you should find the ultimate pair of running shoes and think, perfect! You know what they're going to do? They're going to change them the next style, the next time. You're never going to be able to keep with something. And we see this passage, this famous passage, which I'm sure you've heard lots of sermons about in the death of Lazarus, as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, this book, as part of the New Testament that pulses, says John Updike, with vitality. You see this disruptive outrage at our vulnerability to impermanence. Listen, there was this man named Lazarus, you just heard. 
Courtney Reed, from Bethany, where Mary and Martha lived. And we're told that Jesus really loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and they send word to him. We don't know if they posted it on Facebook or if they did a group text, but we do know that they were insistent to get word to Jesus. Jesus, the one that you love is sick. They knew. They'd been around. They had cultivated and come to realize that this Jesus was the Holy One of God, like Peter affirmed a few chapters back. Like the man born blind who had his eyesight restored, a sort of instantaneous corneal transplant. And they knew this sickness is something I have to put in the way of Jesus. And they are confident. All I need to do is bring it to him. He'll know what to do. He'll respond. And when Jesus heard this, he said, did he say to them in a message? Did he text it back? Did he send it with messengers? Did he say to his disciples? Disciples were not totally sure. This sickness will not terminate in death. This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. A stage is being set, of course. This passage John has put before resurrection, before Jesus' own crucifixion, he's trying to alert you to something. He's trying to give you a teaser that you can watch on YouTube to get an inflamed sense of, wait, you mean there's a kind of sickness, there's a kind of disruption to our bodies that ruins everything good, that won't actually terminate? life, and that somehow people will be on the other side of it, walking hallelujahs, marveling, and jaws dropped in astonishment at God? Jesus says yes, and we're told he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, but, this is an dissonance-creating thing. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Mary and Martha are experiencing their vulnerability to impermanence. Their brother is, they can tell, on the doorstep of death. His body is vulnerable to some kind of sickness. They don't know what to do, so they call to this one that they've seen heal and bring to life, and they're calling on him, will you do something? And we're told, we're given some backstory. Jesus really was fond of them. He loved them a lot. And so it doesn't make any sense. Yet he stayed where he was for two days. It's important to know as you sit there today, when you face the disruptive outrage of your vulnerability to impermanence, When you lose things, or worse, people. When you have some rupture in a relationship that was so dear to you. When you have the catastrophic ripping apart of a family because of a death of someone precious. 
and you prayed, and you prayed, and you got a lot of other people to pray, and you pleaded, and you fasted, and you called out, and then you didn't get the answer you hoped for, and you might have thought, what gives? Does God hate me? Is he against me? Is he closed his heart and his ears toward me. And it's fascinating to me that John would say, Jesus really loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he wanted me to tell you the same, even though he may be waiting a few days or months or years. His love for you is true as well. Just because he's not answering quick, just because he's not on your timetable, doesn't mean he's not up to something. He stayed where he was two more days, then he went to his disciples and said, let's go back to Judea. His disciples, clever fellows, say, (coughs) do do you want to tell, isn't that the place where they wanted to kill us earlier? Isn't that the place where our lives were in danger? Where they made a big pile of rocks? Where they were going to throw a bullpen with you as the catcher with no glove? That's a baseball reference. Thank you. And Jesus says, no, we've got God's daylight. We're walking in God's ways. We'll be fine. And we're going to Lazarus who's fallen asleep. Well, there's he's fallen asleep. You need sleep. Sleep is helpful. Especially the rim kind, you wake up refreshed. It'll help his body. Create chemical normalcies within him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm being euphemistic. He died, to put it delicately. But for your sake, I'm glad that we weren't there so you could see what's going to happen. So that you may believe. John is merciless and ruthless and pushy throughout his gospel for you to believe that everything about life is bound up in this person, Jesus Christ. He sneaks stuff like that in everywhere. He did this so that you may believe. And they saw this, and many people believed. Huh. What what I'm supposed to do, you might wonder. And as I have reminded you at the end of this book, John even says, in case you missed it, I wrote this book, not a record of all that Jesus did, but just like a little appendix of a few things that he did, because the world ain't got enough libraries for all of his activity. But I wrote it so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in believing you might have that thing that you want so badly that it makes you live in constant denial of its opposite. You want life, and so you try hard not to think about death. And you eat too much kale. But it's only going to last for so long. There are no 175-year-old men at the CrossFit gym. It can only help a little while. And so on his arrival, Jesus gets where Lazarus has actually been dead, we're told, for four days, good and dead, not only mostly dead, 
They're trying to set the stage here. It's not just a resuscitation. He wasn't just like on death's door and he got a defibrillation or a CPR action and, and then he came back. But he was actually, the rabbis had this thought that the soul kind of hovered for three days and then after the fourth it took off and nothing's happening. I'm out. He was good and dead. And Mary and Martha had been visited by many people in Jerusalem to comfort them. And when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, this is the Martha who we're told in the next, we're told earlier in this passage, and we'll see in the next one, she did something beautiful that would have been violent to me, but was lovely to Jesus. She broke open an alabaster jar of perfume, and she poured it on him and wiped his feet with her hair, this very tender, affectionate action. And his disciples are outraged. Do you know how many ministry vans we could have bought with that? The whole staff needs new computers and we could have gotten them. And here she is, spilling out the good stuff. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. She's engaged in a divine choreography she scarcely knows about. She's anointing me for my burial and she's going to be remembered Youngblood's going to say something about it in Durham in a lot of years from now. And not only him, but lots of people will. Martha turns out to be the the hero sister of this story in a way. She runs out to Jesus. And Mary stays at home. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where are you? We called for you. We sent for you. We gave you time. Where were you? But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Our vulnerability to impermanence as many of you realize, is experienced sometimes like Tish Warren called it, my, I experience grief like sand. You know, sand is one of those things that makes me wonder, why do people go to beaches? Because sand is, a, is, a, is an irritant. It's beautiful, sure. The further you are away from it, the more lovely it gets. But sand is this hitchhiker that will it'll adhere itself into the rims of your sunglasses. It'll hide itself in the pocket of your pocket tee. You'll be at home and you'll open up a drawer and there'll be a two-inch coating of Santa Rosa Beach in your chest of drawers. You'll open up a book, and there in the spine will be a little colony of sand, multiplying somehow, though it be inanimate. It's everywhere, and Tish Warren says, in the wake of losing a father and two miscarriages and having to move, I experience grief like sand. It gets everywhere. It gets in all the nooks and crannies. It gets in every space of my life. I'm folding the laundry and I catch a scent and it reminds me of my dad. I, 
I see the bag of hand-me-down clothes for our next children, and I think of the ones that aren't going to be. Grief gets everywhere. And when it comes on you, you wonder, what am I going to do? And it's so interesting to me that what Martha does is she takes it up with Jesus. Where were you? She knows she's not going to gain comfort from not taking it up with Jesus. I was in the grocery store the other day. Yeah, I was. Thanks for asking. And I was treated to a conversation that a lady apparently wanted me to have alongside her because she was on her phone while she was getting milk. And she clearly wanted me to hear her because she was on her phone while she was getting milk. And she said this great line. She said, I don't know. I mean, and and I don't think this lady's in here. It was a local grocery store. I wasn't in Minnesota. I don't see her. I don't know who she was. And I don't, I actually am heralding her commentary about her friend, her mom, her aunt, her sister, her coworker. I don't know. But she said, I don't know, but she would argue with Jesus. <laughs> she would argue with Jesus. And I thought, hurry up and get away. I need to write this down. Because I'm a scribe who's noticing and alerting myself to realities, always on the prowl for insight. And I don't know if... No, I do know. She did not mean that as a compliment. It was a defect, a critical defect. She would argue with Jesus. Who would do that? But you know what's amazing? Is that when grief gets everywhere, and it gets in all the spaces of your life, and, it, and it's so violent to you, and it's so disruptive to you, and it creates this kind of outrage in you, that Martha's a pretty good model here. Where were you? You can argue with Jesus. Our prayer book, the Psalms, says you can argue with Jesus. Where else are you going to go? And the reason is because here's what Jesus says. He, he cuts to the chase. He gets to the seller beliefs of what's really up. He says, Martha, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, I know, I know. I'm, I'm Jewish. I know the scriptures. I know that he's going to rise again in the general resurrection at the last day. Everybody knows that. Americans don't, but good Jewish believers knew that, and early Christians knew that. The end of history will be the end of death. There will be this generation, this general resurrection of the dead. And John Updike, Updike says, let us not mock God with metaphor. It's bodily. Bodies will get up. Cells will be rearranged. Molecules will be moved about. Appendages will be reassembled. And eyesight will be restored. And you won't have to wear those $6 cheap dollar general cheaters anymore which have suddenly and violently become my friend. One day I'm going to have to wear them up here. I'm getting where I can't even see the stupid words or non-words on my pages. She knows there's going to be a resurrection. 
Everybody knows that. And Jesus says, well, the resurrection's right here. Life stands before you. Reality itself. The one who creates the air that your, ox- that your lungs need for oxygen stands before you. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever believes in me and lives will never die. And then he makes it personal. Do you believe it? Do you believe this? Is this something you're banking on? Is this a kind of confidence that you're getting in your life? That's what he wants her to have. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you attach yourself to me, there's a way to see through, to be seen through your vulnerability to impermanence. In ways she doesn't even know, he's about to demonstrate it vividly for all the world to see. He's about to start the general resurrection from the dead that was supposed to happen on the last day. He started the end of history with a new creation. The first day of the week. The day now that we worship. The New Testament writers saw Jesus' resurrection as the beginning of the end. The resurrection has started. Death has been overturned. This last enemy has been as Bob said, vanquished. She says she believes it. Mary comes out to him. She falls at his feet. She likes it there. And says the same thing. Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. She knows. They intuit. There's something about life that has to do with Jesus. There's something about the preservation of life, the elongation of it. There's something about Life in the world to come, life forever. There's something about this vitality that we crave and, and we're working so hard to maintain and, and we can't think and, or deal with the possibility of it not being. It has to do with him. And both sisters come to him. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then these lovely gift words, the shortest verse of the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus bawled. That's Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner's interpretation, his gloss on it. Jesus wept. C.S. Lewis captures a similar moment with young Diggory and the magician's nephew. Please, but please. Won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then he had been looking at the lion's great paws. Huge feet and giant claws. And now in despair, he looked up at the lion's face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining Tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears. 
compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment, that for just a moment, he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. I know. I know. Isn't it stunning that while we live in between, knowing that death is ultimately vanquished, that bodily death isn't the termination of our existence, that we look forward to life in the world to come, and that life has started now, that Jesus doesn't say to people who find it intolerable to contend with the losses that have been entrusted to them. He doesn't say, hey, snap out of it. He just bawls. And if the Savior you go to doesn't seem that tender to you, it's probably one, he's probably one you made up. Because this, John says, is the revelation of God. This is who you're to look at and to figure out what God is like. No one's ever seen him, but Jesus makes him known, and he bawled. Because their grief and their undoneness undid him, even though he knew the end of the story, and they didn't. And yet he still bawled, so much so that the Jews looked at him and said, Wow! Holy fright! They probably said something like that in the Greek. Aramaic. See how he loved them. Him. See how he loved them. But Jesus wasn't just weepy. He was also, scholars would contend when it says, deeply moved and troubled. He was a little angry too, perhaps. He was a little outraged. Perhaps at the death itself. At this violence to God's good world. And that's important to see too. Ivan, the one and only Ivan and Christina Applegate story talks about his father, the silverback gorilla who used anger to protect and to bring order to the troop, to the tribe. And he says, I am angry to protect you. I am angry for what is against you. And we're told that Jesus was deeply moved as he came to the tomb. This kind of snorting, snarling, frustrated anger. Because unlike modern people, as I keep joking, who do our best to think that death isn't going to happen, or we'd say weird things like death is just part of life. Well, but in the Bible, it's not. It's a violation of life. It's a violent intruder and vandalization of all that God intended. He hates death. Paul calls it the final enemy. It's Satan's business. So if you hate it, good. You're on the side of truth. Don't tell people it's just part of life. Tell them it's an anomaly. Tell them that it's a perversion of life. And that's why Jesus underwent it so that it could be undone and disabled. 
And that's why you have these weird reactions when you're in grief where you don't know sometimes whether you're about to kill somebody or you're about to weep a river. Because sometimes you see something so startling you don't know what to do. You're just a cyclone of emotions inside. When our youngest son was about two years old, we drove up onto a scene of a Toyota 4Runner flipped up on its side on the S-curves there coming out of Fairland. It was my sister's car. The whole back, the whole underneath of the car was there. She was fine, thankfully. The car had flipped up on its side. And this little boy intuitively knew, without thinking, he just reacted something so startling and something so awful. The only response is to burst out in tears. It's too awful. It's hateful. It's horrid. It's startling. All that metal flashing. We're not supposed to see that. That's supposed to be the undercarriage. Something about that car that should be going upright and look smooth and cool and have people who wear Tevas in it. It's all of a sudden flipped upside down and it's not right anymore. And so he broke out in tears and that's the only right reaction. And Jesus has this disruptive outrage at our vulnerability to impermanence too. He hates death. And so he goes to the tomb and they say, don't, ah, it's going to not smell so good. Jesus goes anyway. And with the voice that wind and wave know how to obey, with the voice that called galaxies into existence and gave sight to a blind man and is sustaining your lungs at this very moment, he said to a dead man, Lazarus, come out. Have you ever tried to wake up a teenage boy? I've worked in camps, residential camps, and it's occurred to me how powerless I am even to wake up a child, a boy, a teenage years who doesn't want to. Now, I, I was bigger than they were, and I could, I could have resorted to violence. That probably would have worked. I could have come in with an atomic souffle with an elbow to their back that would have hurt and bound to have woken them up. Water in the face, perhaps. Mainly it was just cajoling. Come on, please, wake up. Crying. Come on, guys. But Jesus says a word, and death is overturned. That seems like somebody we want to be a part of. And of course, he was just demonstrating his authority over it because, and not too long after that, he was going to be puzzling people with an empty tomb, meeting up these women at the grave, emboldening, cowering disciples because he had conquered the disruptive outrage of death. Kathy and I had our 22nd anniversary on Friday. And we've been dating and we're married for 30. And I got this ring when we were married. She got one too. But I was working in seminary one day and this ring, it, it disappeared. I was at Loaves and Fishes, this place in a Popka, Florida, and I was loading up boxes and stuff. And, 
And I suddenly became a charismatic. I lost this ring. I was so disquieted by it. I, 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 was, I was looking for miracles in ways I never had before. I got to thinking, well, maybe I blew my nose. Sorry. And I remember doing that, and then, and then I threw the tissue in the toilet. So maybe, Lord, you can bring the ring back from the sewage system. Cause it to rise from the toilet. Lord, you know where everything is. I was, I was preoccupied. I was praying. I couldn't focus. I couldn't think. I was scouring the place, looking high and low, looking in dark places. I was driving to pick up boxes of food and pondering and pondering. And then, and then just be pleading, God, please. It was so disruptive, this loss. Like it was just, and this is just a symbol of something, a symbol of something very important to me. But I, it, it was, I couldn't focus. And I was pleading with God. And I, uh, well, you know how the story turned out, but I, I came back and I was in one of those freezers where, like, if you're in a movie, you get locked in there. And all of a sudden, I lifted a box and there was my ring stuck to a cardboard box somehow in the crease. And I spoke in tongues. But I was euphoric. Ah, the Lord found this ring for me. He recovered this precious thing for me. And it occurs to me, on this happy day, that you guys, and even me too, are the rings. And that somehow, lost in darkness, clinging to an impermanent thing like a cardboard box, unable to call out, here I am, unable to show yourself. Jesus frantically making his way to get you the symbol of life and to give you life. And now we're told he has your names engraved, not just a ring, but engraved. On the palms of his hands, Jesus disrupts what disrupts us. He is life. He is resurrection. And you are a lost ring that he is so glad to have found. So stick close. Stick very close. Amen.